Whether you have a skin interest, a skin query, a skin trauma, or skin disease, I warmly welcome you to Heal Thy Skin, a podcast brought to you by Derm Health Co. I'm Marnie, dermal clinician, dermoscopist, and your podcast host. Skin is deeper than beauty, and our mission is to build the largest platform of specialized practitioners focused on skin health and skin empowerment. Join me each week where we go deep into the skin and beyond to hear stories and education from leading practitioners on a journey of skin health. Welcome to episode number 30 of the Heal Thy Skin podcast. I'm Marnie, your host, and today I'm speaking with Carly Finlay, the award-winning writer, speaker, and appearance activist. Her first book, a memoir called Say Hello was released in Australia in January 2019 and Carly is also working on editing Growing Up Disabled in Australia with Black Ink Books. She writes on disability and appearance diversity issues for news outlets including the ABC, The Age and Sydney Morning Herald and the SBS and she was named as one of Australia's most influential women in the 2014 Australian Financial Review and Westpac 100 Women of Influence Awards. She's appeared on ABC TV's You Can't Ask That and Cyber Hate with Tara Moss, and she's been on regular or various ABC programs. She's spoken at the Melbourne Writers' Festival, the University of Western England, and Melbourne Uni, to name a few. She organised the History Making Access to Fashion, which was a Melbourne Fashion Week first, Uh, And it was an event featuring disabled models, which was an incredible event, which I wasn't actually able to attend, but I saw from afar on social media and it just, yeah, it was amazing. She has a Master's of Communication and a Bachelor of E-Commerce, and she identifies as a proud disabled woman. Carly lives in Melbourne, Australia. I have to disclose, actually, that Carly has been a dream guest for this podcast since the beginning, and it was sheer luck and being in the right place at the right time that made this interview happen. So a guest for this week's podcast actually had to reschedule. So I put a call out to my networks for guests and lo and behold, Carly was tagged and quickly responded that she was available. I could not contain my excitement. This lady has a voice that is breaking down the barriers and raising awareness of appearance activism, not just in Australia, but around the globe. You are absolutely going to love this episode. So make sure you finish right until the end, you'll hear Carly speak about becoming an author, growing up in small regional town with ichthyosis, turning a formal complaint into a state education solution for the taxi company, and the importance of self-respect before self-love. I started by asking Carly what she thought was the biggest misconception about visible skin differences. I think that the biggest misconception is that the serious skin conditions and also minor skin ailments, just cosmetic. For me, I have ichthyosis and it makes my skin very red, very scaly. I use paraffin-based ointments to treat it daily, to maintain it daily. And I think that so many people think that I've been sunburnt or it's a result of microdermabrasion and that it will easily go away. They think that it's cosmetic but not painful 
And so when people ask me, are you sunburnt? And I say no, they're relieved thinking that, oh, thank God you're being sunburnt because you know how painful that can be. Mm. But they don't even think about the ongoing kind of effects how painful living with ichthyosis is and also how socially challenging it is. It's almost a relief that to them when I say I'm not sunburnt that oh they think I'll go away Mm. or that it can be easily covered up. So I think for me that's the biggest misconception. I mean, of course, there's a lot of other things like, you know, the microaggressions and overt discrimination that I experience. They all come down to misconceptions as well, you know, things like I might ruin a taxi driver's car because of my face Mm. or that I'm contagious or that that it's microdermabrasion. Yeah. (laughs) It's quite ridiculous. I have no idea what, you know, I don't practice in any kind of cosmetic procedures at all so when people ask me if it's microdermabrasion I laugh and because I get that a lot so yeah I think it's just that it is that skin conditions are cosmetic and that they don't hurt and that they'll go away yeah and there's this concept that when someone has a skin condition the talking about or explaining what the skin condition is someone might introduce someone as suffering from this Mm-hmm. I know that's not necessarily the language that is positive. Can you elaborate on this more and perhaps give us a better way to explain if someone got a skin condition? Yeah, I'm, when I, I have a really amazing team of dermatologists at the Royal Melbourne Hospital, who some of whom I've been seeing since I was a child, you know, for 32 years. And sometimes the newer dermatologists, because it's a teaching hospital, you know, change over dermatologists every year and sometimes when I'm introduced to a new one you know the more senior one might say this is Carly she suffers from ichthyosis netherton syndrome is the specific type of ichthyosis and I will always say oh I'm living with I think it's a very big assumption to say that people are suffering Mm. I think that yes we certainly do endure it well I do endure the condition I endure people's stares comments misconceptions discrimination but I don't particularly suffer from it it's my normal it's what I know I've lived with it all of my life I'm very very used to it it doesn't mean I don't think about it every minute of the day or every hour of the day but I'm not suffering I think that there's an assumption that for those of us who look different who have a serious medical condition that our life is less than and that's not the case. I'm living, I'm thriving with it even. I've exceeded expectations. Yeah. When I was born, my parents were told, well, firstly, they were told that I had ichthyosis and, and that was the correct diagnosis, which I, I'm amazed actually that they could find such a quick diagnosis in the early 80s. And then when I wasn't getting you know better in air quotes the dermatologist at the time I was born in Aubrey I told my parents that they weren't looking after me properly my parents quickly gave them a big fu rightly so (laughs) and we no longer saw that dermatologist in Aubrey which made it quite tricky Aubrey's about four hours drive from Melbourne probably longer then before all the infrastructure got good Mm. and about I don't know seven hours drive from Sydney and so we were put under the care of the paediatrician in Aubrey which was really really great they gave me care until I was about 21 and then we would travel either to Sydney Wagga or Melbourne to see the dermatologist there 
I think that, yeah, that when I was really young, I went to the Royal Children's Hospital to stay for quite some time, I think three months, and my mum and dad would come and go and either stay with me for a period of time and go back to Aubrey, or they were very worrying. And, and I think that it was predicted that I wasn't going to live very long. Babies with ichthyosis who don't receive adequate care often in the developing countries die or unfortunately, you know, horrifically killed Mm. because it's assumed that there's a curse on the village. And it was not predicted that I would live very long and I've defied that, which has been, and and a lot of people with harlequin ichthyosis, which is the most severe type, often don't have a long lifespan. I've a few people to die prematurely because of that, you know, either babies or young adults even with Netherton syndrome, the type I have, which is, you know, on the severe end of the scale, because they've had an infection that has gone to the blood or they've not been able to maintain weight or for whatever reason. So, yeah, there's that. Sorry, that was a really long-winded way of saying that I don't suffer, but there's a lot of things that I endure. Yeah, no, I completely understand. And just using a more positive terminology. Absolutely. You can't just imply that someone is suffering based on what they're going through. Yes, there may be times of suffering, mm-hmm. but that negative tone just brings it all back, doesn't it? Yeah, and I think that we really have to change the way we talk about disability, chronic illness on the whole, and not think that our lives are worth less or that we are not enjoying them or that yes. we're not succeeding. Many of us with ichthyosis are enjoying all ordinary lives, you know, married and having jobs, having great careers, we're, you know, just living an ordinary life. And a lot of us are living really successful lives as well, you know. Mm. And I'd love to hear more about what you're doing in terms of your freelance journalism, your advocacy Mm -hmm. and activism as well. Yeah, so I've been writing professionally, I guess, for about 10 years in the media. I always wanted to be a journalist when I was younger from a very young age. I I loved writing and I wanted to be a journalist, but I grew up in Albury where there was no university close by that was no journalism communications courses. And so my parents said, that I was too unwell and I constantly in hospital and my skin was up and down during high school to move away. And also it was very expensive. And in hindsight, I really wouldn't have wanted to be living away from home, struggling to afford it as a university student with my skin. So Mm. I think that as much as I resented having to stay in Aubrey and doing a business degree, I did e-commerce after school, I really valued that I was able to stay at home with minimal stress. I had a part-time job at Kmart, which was amazing. It really taught me how to deal with the comments and stares in a professional way because in a very service role, I had to work out how to this, you know, maintain the customer service role that I had. So that was great. So when I, you know, when I finished my degree, I got a very sensible job in the public service and I chose that job because, you know, studying HR in uni told me that I'd be very supported in the public service because they set mm-hmm. the bar for, then it was called affirmative action. And to an extent, I was really supported in terms of having enough leave when I was in hospital but certainly I felt like I could not grow 
in the public service. There was a lot of low expectations of me. I could not achieve a promotion. I could not achieve a promotion in the communications role as I was working to, which I found really, really hard. And it was always this, you know, unsaid kind of discrimination, like, oh, you don't write, you're, you can't write for a big enough audience. And at that time, when I was going for those communication roles, I was writing for The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald and my yeah. stories were the top story, you know. I was too passionate for workplace diversity. And so I kept this at that time, I'd, in about 2009, 2010, I'd started blogging and properly, I'd, I'd always blogged online, but I really put a focus on that. And I was also going to university to do Masters of Communication. RMIT and so I knew that I wanted to work my way out of there but I was too scared to take the jump because it was such a secure well-paying job that I had and I enjoyed a few of the jobs that I had at public service and I loved the people but I just could not get anywhere and so I worked on being a freelancer as well as working in the public service I would write a lot the age, SBS, sometimes the ABC. And then in 2016, I was doing a talk. I was also doing a lot of talks, but not as many as I do now because I had the day job to you know, keep. I was doing a talk and I was opening my talk for Ju- a talk for Julia Gillard wow. um, with Lane Beachley. Wow. So I was the opening speaker and then Julia was the <laughs> second speaker. And I went, <laughs> I went back to, it was pretty, yeah, it's pretty surreal, but I had to do this at lunchtime and I went back to work <laughs> in the public service and I was an EA at that time and I was just stuffing envelopes and talking to managers much more senior than me in how to address this envelope. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I cannot keep doing this. And there was a job that came up at a not-for-profit, a part-time job. It was three days a week. And I went for it. And then I thought, you know, I, when I got it and I listed all these ways to make money. You know, I had a media profile. I had some speaking experience. And um, I listed all these ways to make money and, and then – it worked for me. I working part time. I had a great contract with an organisation in Sydney who I travelled to for two years. I travelled to them monthly and deliver training. I was writing a bit more for the media, and then I got a book deal, and it all kind of snowballed. And a year, I took a year's leave without pay from the public service. And when I didn't have to ask my parents for money, I was like, Yeah, yeah I can do this. <laughs> I can do this full time. And I ended up quitting that not-for-profit job about six months in and when I got my book deal I wasn't enjoying the job I was able to sustain myself and now I work for an arts organization part-time and I write and speak mostly speak to be honest I don't I haven't written for a long time properly although I'm getting back into it now I've had holidays so I write a lot about appearance diversity about disability about ichthyosis for the media for my book I wrote a book and I speak Mm. a lot about it as well I don't much speak about the medical aspects, but the social impacts of living with a visibly Yes, fantastic. Condition. What a great journey. Mm. Yeah, it's been a great journey. And like last year, my book came out. It's called Say Hello. And it's a memoir. And it was the busiest year of my life. It was quite ridiculous. The travel that I was doing, the amount of speeches around November, December, I did I think nine speeches in seven days. I think I had November, December, I had about 18 engagements, like travelling to Sydney, 
in Melbourne, within Melbourne as well. It was really, really busy and it was good, but incredibly busy. And I had an appointment at the dermatologist in November. I'd just gotten back from Bali because I did Orbit Writers Festival and I was really sore. I could not get better. I think it was the water in Bali that was making my skin sore, you know, having a shower in that water. If you can't drink it, what's yeah. it doing to your skin? And I could not get better. I was in a lot of pain. And my dermatologist said, you know, <laughs> to slow down. And I said, but it's fine. Every time I travel, my hotel room has a bath and I never have a bath at home. So there's that. Yeah. Um, and you're just getting started. Um, and it was... I know, you know, like it's hard to say no, but I really feel like I have to listen to my body because I was not getting better. I'm all right now. I've just had a month off my day job, my festival job, which has been great. And we're back at work on Monday. But I really, yeah, it's been an exercise in knowing when to stop. And fortunately, I haven't been very, very sick, but I have been in pain. She's manageable. I now I hadn't seen a pain specialist until I was about mid-30s and I have started now and they've been really great, you know, acknowledging that there's so much pain with this condition and giving Yeah, such an to important to lesson to know when to listen to your body because when exciting things I are know. happening, it would be very tempting <laughs> to just say yes to everything. Yes. And also one of the great things that's happened in the last year, because I've been invited to so many writers festivals, I've done Melbourne, which is my, which has my heart. It's my home. I've always been a participant, but now, you know, like an audience member, but now I'm a participant. I've done Byron. I've done Perth. I've done, I think I've done Bendigo in 2018. And I also went to Ubud to do Ubud Writers Festival and stay on and went to Central Java, which was amazing. But my mum has, well, she just said, right, I'm coming to all these festivals. And now she's known as Festival Mum. <laughs> Little groupie. Um, she's loving it. She loves it. We've got to meet Yosem Otolingi at, at Ubud and she was just starstruck and she joked that she would see his session even if it clashed with mine. <laughs> <laughs> and anyway, she, she said she, it's been great having her there because she's been able to tell me to stop, to slow down, to get some rest. And she's been, I guess, instrumental in me knowing that I need to stop. Although we were in Byron, this was her first big festival away she'd come to Melbourne but Melbourne's a bit you know I still have to juggle that around my work but we were staying at this beautiful resort in Byron and she was so excited to see all the all the writers Maxine Beneva Clark and Omit who is Arush Bashani's interpreter and all I wanted was a sleep in I was so tired you know it's mid-year and she gets up at seven in the morning and she's really passive aggressive. Oh, Carly, I'm up now. I'm going to breakfast. I'm going to see the nine o'clock session. But you just stay in bed. No, no, you just stay there. <laughs> Thanks, Mum. <laughs> so, yeah, it was pretty funny. She'd seen much more sessions than me. But it was great to have her say, on this day, you need to do nothing. Yep. Or even carry things for me, like in Bali, it was so hot and my skin really did suffer. But, you know, she'd be there carrying my stuff so I could have my cold pack. Mm. One of the things that I've really found useful as well, much easier as a freelancer than as an employee, is to be able to talk about my access needs. And so when I was in the public service particularly, I didn't identify as disabled. You know, this was my life. This I knew... I knew that I had this condition from birth and going to hospital, going to appointments in the outpatients was my regular thing. But because I didn't know anyone really with the condition 
and because I didn't know any of the social model of disability, which says that the society is more limiting than our bodies, mm. that I didn't recognise as being disabled. And so I never knew to ask for what I needed. You know, I, I could never say I need to work four days a week because this is easier on me. You know, they wouldn't grant that to me. I couldn't say that I needed to sleep in every so often because I was really sore. I felt like that would really hamper me in my career and it did. And then when I became a freelancer, I can say this stuff now. I have a rider, which is so rock and roll, but it's so not. <laughs> it's having a bath when I travel. Yeah. It's having a blanket on stage. It's having a cool pack if it's really hot. Yeah. It's having water on the stage. Having to be able to sit down to deliver a speech if needed. And now I can talk about all this stuff. And it's really quite a privilege in that way that my work has been set up that I can ask. And even, you know, at my work, I work at Melbourne Fringe two and a half days a week. And if I am pretty unwell on say Monday, which is my regular work day, I can say to my boss, Hey, I'm not feeling well today, but I'll come in on Thursday instead. Yeah. Um, and so that has really, really made a difference to me. And I feel like at the moment I work much more than I ever have in my, you know, in a nine to five job, but I can do work from bed or I can rest in the airport lounge. You know, I've got a lounge membership now. So if my flight's delayed, I can have a shower mm. instead of waiting to get there late at night to have a shower. So that has been a really, really great thing. It's been, yeah, it's been hard, but it's been really good. I feel being public about my skin and the other things I endure because of it has meant that I can ask for these things easier. Yeah, and it's empowering to be able to yeah. choose your own hours and even if you're working more hours when you've got this purpose and you're the driving behind it, it doesn't feel yeah. like work so much, does it? Yeah, absolutely. It doesn't. You know, I do a lot of my writing from bed because I don't have anywhere set up, to be honest. But, you know, other than that, it's comfortable for me. You know, I'm in my pyjamas right now as I'm doing my interview. <laughs> and I did a talk, actually. You and me both, Carly. Of- it's Saturday morning. <laughs> you know, it's great. I did a talk to a bunch of chronic illness bloggers a few years ago and I talked about how it is okay to do work in your pajamas. It is okay to to stay home or work from home. And I did my talk in my pajamas. And then a lot <laughs> a lot of them said that they could, you know, they felt more empowered to do that. And then I had Peter Alexander send me some pajamas because of that. So that was really nice. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> so you often refer to yourself as the lady with the red face. Yeah. Can you share more about ichthyosis for those that may not have heard? of this yeah, condition, sure. the subtypes, you know, a bit of description. Sure. So when I was younger, I guess I was in denial, you know, having ichthyosis of being different. I remember my mum got this amazing portrait painted of an African woman. My mum is South African and she said that this woman would paint a portrait of me and I said, oh, could she paint me white? or brown, but I think at the time I probably asked for white because I didn't identify as African. Mm. And, you know, I wouldn't want people to point out the obvious, but now it's that's just silly. Like it's factual. It's not an offensive thing to say that I've got a red face. I do image descriptions on my social media and I'll say woman with red face and short, dark, curly hair, which is factual. Yes, yeah, so my skin is red. My body is not as red at, like most days, but it is quite quite red and significantly redder when I am sore. I have Netherton syndrome, which is a type of ichthyosis. There's about 25 types of ichthyosis, I think, and there's 
types that are very passable. So if you wouldn't know that you've got a, you know, someone else wouldn't know that you've got a skin condition because you can easily cover it. It might be that you've got some dryness on your legs or extra scaly scalp, you know, different to dandruff, and you might still have white or brown skin but you can easily pass. And then there's types of ichthyosis that leave your skin with massive scales. They're very pronounced. They're very dark. And I guess people who don't know about ichthyosis think that those people are dirty Mm -hmm. because the scales are much like brown or, I guess, look unwashed. And then there's the types like mine, which Netherton syndrome erythroderma and harlequin ichthyosis on the severe end of the scale which make our skin very red impact our hair growth i have a lot of hair at the moment and it has taken a long time to get to this when i was younger my main goal in life was to have hair (laughs) i have long hair and my hair's a lot thicker and longer because I no longer use um, much shampoo I subscribe to the curly girl method which is great and I just condition my hair a lot more than I wash it and it also means that the skin is very very painful very red very scaly very susceptible to infection when I was younger I was in hospital a lot I'd go into hospital about three times a year in the Royal Children's Hospital and then at the Aubrey Base Hospital when I was a teenager. And I was in wet bandages a lot there. Mm. Uh, wet bandages help with the inflammation. I hate them. I'm really having – oh, ichthyosis means also that we don't have the ability to sweat very well. We have sweat glands, but they don't work as well as other people's. And also we we can't control our temperature. So – when it's very, very hot, I find it hard to cool down. I've laid on many a public toilet floor when I'm out because it's too hot, which is very glamorous. The night of my book launch, which had 250 people in Melbourne, it was 45 degrees. I was probably needed to be there at half past four and I got a taxi and just that little time waiting for the taxi outside of my house and also getting like just walking, I don't know, five minutes to the venue, maybe even less was so distressing that I had to lie on the toilet floor Mm. and carry a cold pack on stage. Um, You know, I've since got a, or recently rather got a disability parking permit for those very hot days because it is really hard to walk in those, you know, in the the heat. And also in the winter or just most days actually, I can't warm up. I'm very cold. I often wear a lot more clothes than people, other people are wearing. My grandmother who came from England would love the sun, love, love baking herself in the sun and which isn't good. And she would get this kind of sympathetic temperature thing around me where she couldn't look at me because I was always wearing, you know, jumpers in the in the summer. And she'd say, oh, you must be roasting, you know, take some clothes off. And she couldn't understand that I was so, so cold when it was hot. Mm-hmm. When my mum was going through menopause, it was really annoying because all of her friends were going through menopause as well and she'd have the air conditioner <laughs> on the windows open and I was freezing and she just couldn't understand that. And I often joke, I cannot wait till I get a hot flush because I'm so cold. <laughs> um, so bring on my 40s and 50s. I, uh, but one of the good things is with ichthyosis is that our body, well, I mean, I guess it's not good, but, it, you know, you've got to look on the bright side. Our bodies shed lots more skin than other people. So you, if you don't have ichthyosis, would probably shed your skin once every 28 days. 
I shed 28 days worth of skin in a day, which mm. is quite difficult, but I look very young, very young. I, <laughs> I, I'm 38 and I could probably pass as 28, maybe even 18. I, <laughs> when I was about two years ago, got added to a ridiculous Facebook chat uh, for my school reunion. It was like a 19-year reunion. I don't know why it wasn't 20, but anyway. And I was bullied a lot at school and I hated it and I don't I don't keep in touch with that many people from school. And I, every time I'd say something in the chat, I was ignored or people would leave and I'm like, hey, this is just like school. And so I found a photo of me 20 years ago or 19 years ago and then I found a recent photo I took a recent photo of me and put them side to side and I did not look any different and I said hey (laughs) so I've just found this photo of me in year 11 1998 and me now I'd love to see how you've aged (laughs) and then I left the group because I looked exactly the same and they probably have wrinkles yeah (laughs) Um, absolutely so that's the good thing and also I don't have any body hair which is useful as well and oh the other thing that happens is my eyes get very dry we do not have elastic lower lids people with ichthyosis don't have elastic lower lids and so Mm. a lot of people have what's called atropian eyelids which means the eyelids turn out and don't hold the tears and so we're often dabbing at our eyes I am anyway and I know other people have had that because they get mucus in them and there are a number of people I know who have had corneal abrasions and they've had to have operations I have not yet but my eyes get very very dry they're very sensitive to light in the last 20 years or so I've really noticed I was talking to mum about this the other day actually and we were joking she said oh I was so irresponsible I never put sunglasses on you when you were younger and I said yeah it's only been in the last 20 years that I've been wearing sunglasses because I never thought (laughs) but I mean one day I remember it came out I it was very overcast I drove in and the sky was grey, but I could not keep my eyes open. And I was driving, I had to pull over a few times. And even when I was working in the store, the the light was too bright. And we went to the ophthalmologist the next, or maybe the optometrist, I can't remember, but an eye specialist, I'm thinking it's ophthalmologist in Aubrey. And they said, yes, this is a very common thing with ichthyosis. You'll need to get sunglasses immediately. So I was, what, 20 or 21 then? 20, I think. And uh so I started wearing sunglasses and now I wear them all the time, sometimes even inside because it is so bright that I cannot keep my eyes open and I see an ophthalmologist about once a year and I have, you know, I use drops and stuff. So that can be pretty hard and also having to get my ears cleaned. A lot of the dead skin culminates in the ears and I don't have my ears cleaned out very often now. They're pretty good. I use a cotton bud, which you're not supposed to do, but I do because that's the way to manage it. But I have my ears syringed. I haven't had them for a while. It feels like an orgasm in your ear. It's quite good. Um, (laughs) So I highly recommend that. If there's a benefit, it's that. (laughs) And, yeah, but I guess for me, I know what it's like to live with it. I'm very used to it. I use paraffin ointment to, you know, maintain it and take Panadol, antibiotics and painkillers when I need but the social aspects of the condition are much, much harder than the medical aspects. You know, the stares and the comments and the low expectations, the overt discrimination, like, you know, being asked not to ride in a taxi or refuse a taxi because I might somehow dirty their car. Yeah, that is much harder than living with the condition itself. 
Mm, and I'd love to get into that a little bit more. You've talked a lot in your writing and blogs and even book about children and mm. being at school and the bullying mm-hmm, that you're mm-hmm. doing. And you also talk a lot about informing parents on how to actually communicate oh, with their children. Yeah. People that have visible differences. So yeah. can you share some guidelines or advice? Yeah, that you sure. Yeah, true. I mean, children are honest and they're curious, but it doesn't mean mm-hmm. that it's less tiring for us having to, yeah. having to answer or you know, be the subject of ridicule or children's pointing and staring. If a person, an adult or child, makes a comment like, oh, you're red or why are you red or that child, that woman's red or whatever, it's probably not the first time we've heard that comment that day, you know. People often excuse the comments as being curious or maybe, you know, they need to know more. Or they often say, when I talk about this, particularly in ichthyosis groups, I find it really, really hard because parents of children with ichthyosis, and the parents often don't have ichthyosis themselves, justify this behaviour in saying, oh, it's our job to educate all the time. So, for example some pretty hideous taxi driver discrimination that happened on my birthday in December. And it was probably the 10th time within a year that it's happened. So I'm pretty tired of it. And I now no longer make formal complaints. I just tweet about it, which I've got quite a big Twitter following or social media following as a whole. And that helps. It helps me feel less alone and it helps the taxi company be accountable because when you make a formal complaint, you're often, it's often not a public thing. You can't. You know, you can't then talk about it in the media if it's a complaint with the Human Rights Commission, for example. Anyway, um, and I posted, I wrote an article for news.com.au and uh, I thought, well, you know what, I may as well get paid for this and I may as well make it public so that more people are aware. And I posted it in an ichthyosis group and I was so angry because a bunch of parents came to the taxi driver's defence and said, well, you know, it's our job to educate. It's our job to talk about this. It's our job to to talk about, disclose what the condition is. And I said, no, it's my right to be in a taxi and not Mm. have to provide an explanation about my medical condition to a stranger who's offering me a service. And so that's really, really tiring. So my rule in life is that I do not have to provide an explanation about my appearance to anybody unless it's them helping me become more comfortable. So, for example, you know, my writer, for example, people are going to generally hire me because they know what I'm going to talk about. They know that I've got ichthyosis. But I don't necessarily have to state because of my skin condition I don't want to shake hands or I need uh, water on the stage. I can just say that. So I don't have to provide a backstory why I'm like this to the media or to service people or whatever. I think when educating children we have to talk about that everyone is different, that I really simple answer. I was born like this, like you were born with your brown eyes or everybody's different. Yeah. I use cream to help me like your mum might use moisturiser. And then I normally accept that. Sometimes parents turn their kids' heads away and I don't like staring, but I would rather not be made to feel like I'm something that shouldn't be looked at. I feel like sometimes parents make up an excuse for why I'm like this. So, for example, a child might say, Mum, why has that woman got a red face? Sometimes I'm mistaken for a man as well because of short hair. But they might say, you know, why has, why has she got a red face? And the mother or father might say, oh, I don't know. Perhaps she's been stupid in the sun and been sunburned. Oh. So then, you know, kids are very aware of the problems with 
sunburn, how it causes skin cancer. So then they think that I've been irresponsible and that's not right either. So I'd much rather state why I'm like this. I will often correct them and say, no, I was born like this. But also if a parent says you should go and ask her what's wrong, I don't like that either because it's the assumption that I need to provide an explanation. I think that it's really important for kids to say, do you mind me asking? Yeah. Is it okay if my child asks you? Not make an assumption that I want to educate at all times. So in short, I think it's so important for parents to make sure that kids are exposed to a lot of different people. One thing I'm really, really grateful for is social media in that it prepares kids for me. So a lot of my friends have children now and I've often met their children and their mum or dad will say, oh, we've seen photos of you on my social media and that's great, you know. That's amazing because they're prepared. I think that they should be taught that everybody's different, you know, exposing them to lots of different people in the media, in books and movies and stuff, and also knowing that they don't have the entitlement to know what is wrong with me and there's nothing wrong, but often, you know, the child or the parent will ask what's wrong So knowing that I don't have to answer all times. Also, I have my book now and I've said to parents, you know, when kids have chucked a tantrum because they don't want to look at me or they're scared, I will say, this is a really awkward situation. I've actually written a book and there's a chapter in here about how to deal with this. I will say sometimes that children are rude. I will try and be as polite as I can when they're staring at me and say, hi, or do you want to know about my face? But if they're really overtly rude, I will say, you are actually being really rude and I'm upset. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things I really cherish is very, very good interactions with children and I'll often write about these on social media. For example, I had a child the other day in a restaurant and she didn't ask about my face but she was probably curious and one and after, you know, an hour of us sitting near them, she suddenly poked out her tongue and started laughing and we had a whole 10 minutes of pulling funny faces at each other. (laughs) So I really appreciate those times when kids are great, when kids just accept my explanation for being read and then talk about other things. It's great. Yeah, yeah, that's, Mm. that's awesome to hear that it is happening. And, I mean, if someone had mental health issues or... Mm -hmm conditions we wouldn't expect that they would talk about them or come out as soon as they get in a taxi about them so why is the assumption that just because it's visible that it should be talked about exactly I find it really hard I I do a lot of media particularly on the radio and I find it really hard because I am asked about my condition even when I'm there not to talk about it but my co-host or host or co-interviewer are no longer not asked I did a talk interview on the radio once for a performance that I was in and it was for the Emerging Writers Festival and at the time I just started like being really clear with the guidelines around what I don't want to be asked so my agent would email a list of things you know I don't want to be asked about why I'm red I don't want to talk about my condition because I'm here to talk about a performance do not have to answer personal questions about my medical history and I had a friend that came in as well who works in the arts and she was also interviewed and she's got an invisible disability they asked her so why are you here What makes you disabled? And that was really awkward. I'm also often asked um, to describe it for radio. And I'm like, well, the host isn't describing the way they look. 
Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I saw an interview the other day with a friend, two friends actually, they're in a really great book called Underneath We Are and I'm in the book as well and it's a book of, pe- of mostly women and non-binary people and transgender people who are posing in the nude or with underwear and so you can see my whole body in that book because I'm in my underwear and one of the women is not visibly disabled and the other person is in a wheelchair and it was on Studio 10 and Carrie ann Kennelly immediately asked my friend in a wheelchair about their condition and they said, I don't want to discuss this, I'm here to talk about the book. So why I think that there's an assumption that we have to provide our medical history to people and it's really hard. I did an interview on the radio on ABC Melbourne uh, nearly two years ago and the host asked an array of insensitive questions and described my appearance and it was very, very hard and I just kind of laughed it off and then afterwards I'm like, what just happened? Mm-hmm. And it made the media and it was the top story um, in the media for a while and I didn't feel like I could speak out because I was guest on the radio, a volunteer. You're not paid when you go on ABC as a guest and I just started, you know, becoming a regular presenter and after that I did speak out in the media and I said how inappropriate it was. I talked to the age and the project and I was not invited back to the ABC for 10 months I was really, really disappointed. It was very awkward. I was unfollowed on Twitter by ABC Melbourne and I was too scared to talk about the impacts of this stuff for a while and my editor, I was writing my book at the time and just as the last edits were coming through, she said, hey, why haven't you written about the ABC? I'm like, oh, God, do I have to? And she said, yeah, people will be expecting you to. And I wrote about it, which is great. I, you know, it put time between the incident and it put distance between me and the reader because I received a lot of trolling when, when that happened as well. And I wrote about it. I will not mention the presenter's name. I don't give him the power. He's now left, which I hope helps me with the ABC relationship. And I've also been asked to talk about it on other ABC programs, which has been great, including on ABC Melbourne. But it, that interview really damaged my relationship with the ABC, which I was really, really sad about because I love it. And I would have expected Carl Sanderlands to ask me those sorts of questions, but mm. not somebody that works as a seasoned broadcaster on a quite a regulated and diverse program. Absolutely. And I mean, given that you've done postgraduate studies in journalism, you know, you mm-hmm. come from a very educated spot, you're an author, you're a keynote speaker. So mm-hmm. those are the things that, you know, what you're doing in the that you're known for as being as advocate as opposed to mm. just Carly with ichthyosis. It's mm-hmm. all the other things that you've created. Yeah, it's hard to be taken seriously, I think. And I think um, so Stella Young, who was in this incredible disability activist who passed away in 2014, she would not talk about the diagnosis. And in hindsight, I wish that I hadn't either because that's often the first thing that people ask me or tell me about ichthyosis not tell me about the work that you do and so yeah I think that she set a really good boundary with that I actually in my book I quoted her a lot and I worked I talked to her family to ask if I could quote her and my editor had made an edit to say that Stella Young, who had this particular condition, said this. And I actually wrote back in my notes, I am not disclosing what her condition is because she never did. And Mm. it's so important that we respect the way that people talk about their condition.
Yes, so important. Now, Carly, your mum taught you that self-respect is sometimes important before self-love. Yeah. So what does this mean to you, especially in the rise of this self-love campaigns that's just everywhere? Yeah, I mean, my mum taught me that I have to respect myself and respect, respect other people and talk nicely about myself. I feel like when a child is born with ichthyosis or a different severe disability parents grieve over what could have been I see so many parents of kids with ichthyosis say oh my child will never be able to do this they'll never be able to have a normal quote unquote life and also they think that they will no longer be able to get into a relationship with another person and I think that loving yourself is far more important than being loved by someone else in a romantic yeah. way because often that's seen as a measure of normality, that seen that, oh, well, that other person accepts you despite your ichthyosis and that, that shouldn't be the case. So I think that it's so important to respect yourself, to talk nicely about yourself. I, I see a lot of people say when, you know, when they post a photo on social media, oh, I'm really sorry that I'm not wearing makeup or sorry for the hideous angle or, you know, gosh, I wish I didn't have two chins in this photo. So to talk nicely about yourself is so important because your children, your peers are going to hear this. I was talking with a friend who has a little girl with ichthyosis in England, I think, and her daughter's three, just a beautiful daughter. And my friend apologized for the way she looked. And I said, hey, don't, you know, your daughter's going to hear that. She shouldn't have Mm -hmm. to apologize for how she looks. In terms of the self-love movement, I think that it's very limited to white, thin people with beauty privilege and beauty privilege is when people see themselves or see people like them in the media when they don't have an issue in getting into a taxi or people laughing at their face. When I talk about the discrimination that I face, I honestly think that people without ichthyosis have no idea about that. Yes, they might get wolf whistled in the street, which is hideous and, you know, violent and sexualized. But I don't think that they've ever been told that they should kill themselves because of the way they look or they've been rejected on dates or that their appearance is thought of as hampering their life. I honestly don't think that the majority of people I know who have beauty privilege have ever encountered this. And I feel like like with self with the self love movement, it's very limited around appearance. And also people who post selfies of them in their bikini and, and talking about how liberated they feel are often people that are very thin, very you know, very good skin, very already in the media or that they are congratulated for not airbrushing themselves. Well, why would you in the first place? I think people have forgotten what they look like because they're so Mm. used to having a photo filtered on Instagram. You know, now we no longer have to wait to be airbrushed by the media. We can do it ourselves. And my husband actually is so sick of taking outfit photos of me. I did, I wrote it into our wedding vow that he would take a photo of my outfit every day. He thinks he doesn't have to because he never said that. It was me that said it. And the other day he took a photo of me because I was in this amazing, cool new dress and the lighting was so bad that I had to add a filter to make myself actually look 
like myself because <laughs> my face was really pale and I'm like, I don't ever use a filter on my photos, but I did not look like myself then. So I had to make it more, re- I had to make myself look about the redness that I am in real life. I post a photo on Twitter nearly every day and I have a little caption because of Twitter's short, you know, brevity of characters and also because I want to make a statement of defiance and I post an outfit photo and I say, I wore this today and I felt fucking fabulous. And people (laughs) have asked me why I do that. And I said, I've said because of the brevity, but also because it is not expected that people like me could possibly feel fabulous, if not Mm. fucking fabulous. And so I post that because I I swear. And I also want to state that it is possible to feel fabulous in your own skin, no matter how it looks. And And look good in an old print, might I add. No, a lot of people have said that I, you know, in the past that I should just stick to neutral, stick to grey. But now I use my colour, my redness as an accessory and I don't worry about that. I love colour and I love print and clashing with it. And the more over the top, the better. I would often want to blend into the background and not wear things like sequins or, but now I'm okay with that. I had this amazing tinsel jacket made for the opening of Melbourne Fringe where I work and while it wasn't very great for letting me my skin breathe I was actually quite sore afterwards (laughs) because it was plastic I guess you're wearing plastic it was amazing to wear but it was weird because it got so many likes on social media obviously and lots of people were commenting in person however on the night that I wore it at Fringe I still got asked if I was sunburnt and I thought, oh my gosh, is this not enough to detract you from my face? <laughs> like, I just, I could not, I, I'm like, what do I have to wear for you not to ask me about my face? And obviously, you know, it was in a work situation. So I was even more annoyed about it, but we found some tinsel in the office after Fringe Festival was over and our CEO's like, oh, Carly can make a jacket out of that. Love it. So, yeah. Carly Finley, writer, speaker, advocate and fashionista. <laughs> <laughs> I do, yeah, I really, really love fashion. And one of the things that I've really been grateful for, no, no, I shouldn't be grateful because it should just happen, but more brands have been asking me to work with them and, you know, saying can we send you some stuff or can you wear our dress. I put a call out when I did my book tour, which was a few months, you know, in duration and I put a call out for brands to send me clothes, to dress me, and they did. And I was amazed because in the past when I was more of a blogger, um, no brand wanted to work with a chronically ill, visibly different person. And now I have Obus, for example, sharing my photos of me wearing their clothes, you know, Jigga Jagger, Jericho Road, really great Australian brands wanting me to wear their stuff. And people have said, because of you, Carly, I've bought this dress. And I'm like, wow, that's amazing. That's Mm, that's awesome. It's really cool. Yeah. A lot of your writing discusses the limitations that people put on disabled people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, despite you looking younger than most people your age, (laughs) how have you kind of overcome, disregarded these limitations completely? blown them out of the water have you had like this this mantra is it just your tenacity what do you think Mm -hmm. has been defining concepts behind your success well I I haven't always been I I guess I've always been outspoken but I've not always been outspoken about my skin about what I need so when I was probably about 23 I had just got a promotion at the public service so I'd been there for two years and I 
went to work in payroll and I thought that I was kind of going to be working in HR. Like I thought that that's what it was going to be. But unfortunately, it was really numbers-based and I am awful with numbers. And it was very cyclical, obviously, because payroll was every two weeks you'd get paid. And so I had no idea what I was doing. I could not keep up with the, with the, the, with the work. I, you know, I took a long time to grasp the situation, to grasp the type of work we're doing. I was really bad with numbers. And I get sick because I was stressed in my job, you know, mm. and so that there's clear link between stress between emotions and an illness or a condition and so I'd have time off work and I would get staff telling me who's going to do your job when you're in hospital I would get people doubt me that when I'd have to go to an appointment you know I have to see the dermatologist and I would worry that because of the weight in the public health care system that I was taking time away from work and I'd feel guilty and I could not keep up with this workload it was really really hard you know managing living alone managing an illness I think I just started at university back at university as well doing my master's and I asked my boss at the time who wasn't very nice if I could work part-time if I could drop a day and they said no and I said well if I was having a baby would you allow me to go part-time and they said yes and I said that's ridiculous, you know. I didn't take it much further because I was so worried about losing my job. But last year or the year before, I was given a statement of conditions, I think, that Fair Work Australia have when you commence a new job. So when I commenced my job at Fringe and in it, it said, if you are disabled, you can ask for part-time work. And I, mm. I already had part-time work, like the job was part-time. And I'm like, wow, I never knew that this was a condition because I was made to think that I was not able to go part-time, that my skin condition was not severe enough to warrant that. And I had, you know, anyway, so I wrote about that, how, what an epiphany it was to be able to prove that, yes, it is considered, you know, severe enough to go part-time. You know, I didn't speak up about this. I was too scared. And when I more, uh, as I was writing and speaking in the media, uh, doing TV, com- uh, you know, community TV, I'd meet lots of disabled people and I realised the social model of disability, which was that our bodies are not the barrier, the limitations that society put up are the barriers. And I was able to articulate what I needed in the workplace, in the media, well, the media is my workplace, and in life. And I was able to say, hey, this is discrimination. And so that really, really helped me. But it is tiring. You know, I don't always want to be fighting something. I, after the taxi incident, after my birthday, the next day I had to go to work. But I was fielding questions from media outlets. Can we interview you? I said, no, just take it from my social media. The taxi company was trying to get in touch. I was a finalist for the Horn Prize, which is a prize with the Saturday paper. And I had to go to a really fancy dinner. And I really just wanted to focus on going to work, getting ready for the dinner and being at the dinner. But instead, I had to manage all of the stuff that comes with discrimination. So Mm. obviously, I chose to tweet about it. But I had to manage the people that were saying, well, of course, they were scared of your face. or this isn't discrimination. I had to manage the taxi company. I had to manage the media. And so that's really, really tiring on top of what's already happened. And I told my boss what had happened at work and he was nearly in tears. He's like, what, you do so much work and they're still discriminating. I said, yeah, it does not matter what the media profile is, how much work I've done. I'm still going to encounter this and it's really, really tiring. So I really appreciate it when other people make complaints on my behalf or when they're willing to get on 
to to not play devil's advocate um the taxi company were amazing that the first or the second actually that have been so responsive and they kept me in touch with what's happening with the driver they actually sent me a voucher to have dinner somewhere you know which is amazing (laughs) Um, and that was really great but it's really tiring when when you're enduring this discrimination on top of living with this condition and not knowing when it's going to happen next so yeah. that has been really tiring. So, yeah, I mean, there's a level of resilience that I have had to build. And I had a friend who actually, she's disabled, and she actually said that this isn't discrimination. I said, who are you to tell me that it's not discrimination? And we had a really big talk about it. And, and at the root of her dismissal of my experience was that she, I guess, was jealous of my resilience. And she said, how do mm. you do it? How do you stay so resilient? And I said, I just have to. Like, there's no other choice. Can you yep. choose to hate yourself or choose to be subject to this discrimination and not make it better for other people or yep. or just forge on? Yeah, resilience and also just being informed. And I guess that comes with experience, maturity, mm-hmm. things that you may have endured or experienced when you were a young teen. I'm yep. sure you would definitely not put up with now. And exactly. And that comes um, with just years of experience. Yeah. I think one of the other things that I'll just touch on briefly is around how the mm. media portrays ichthyosis and how tiring yeah. that can be. I get Google alerts for ichthyosis and... Very often the headline is mother gives birth to plastic baby or Mm. snakeskin woman or woman has to wash her child's clothes in a washing machine that breaks down every month. And they're really dehumanising. And I find that parents, particularly new parents, are very, very quick to want to raise awareness of this condition. And they do so with social media. And they also put their child in mainstream media, which is often not great mainstream media. It's tabloid media. And this is so damaging, not only for the child who is going to Google themselves one day and find that they've been called plastic baby or mermaid baby or worse, but for the whole community. Because people think that, well, they've read an article about ichthyosis, they know everything. I get asked a lot, oh, were you on embarrassing bodies? And I say, Mm. no, I would never do that kind of media. But because people with ichthyosis look so similar because of our genetic makeup, they assume that they've seen one person, they've seen them all. And the homogenization of disability is a real problem when the media portrays us in that way. And Mm. so I find it really unhelpful when people with ichthyosis and parents of children with ichthyosis do really problematic media because we are then painted in a certain way. A few years ago, there was an article that was doing the rounds that was in America and elsewhere, and it got syndicated to Australian news outlets. And Channel 9 had put a a photo uh, of this really beautiful baby with ichthyosis in the article, and they had put a content warning on their article on their photo to say graphic images ahead. And Mm -hmm. it was a baby that looked like me when I was a baby. And I wrote a letter to the media watchdog, I can't remember what they're called, Australian Communications Media Authority, I think, and also to Channel 9, and I put it on Twitter, and I put instructions around what you can do to help that you can write a letter as well because I'm Mm. really sick of the portrayal of ichthyosis in the media, in literature, and that's why I wrote my book. That's why I do what I do because I want kids to see that what's possible for them. I was on the project last year for my book and a mother of a child with ichthyosis sent me a photo of her child watching the TV and he said, that's Carly, she's got the same skin as me. And, you know, when I was a kid, I would have wanted that as well. 
Yeah, that's beautiful. Mm. Now, I wanted to also touch on your experience with the taxi <laughs> um, companies. Now, I know it was several years ago now that you and from talking with you today, it seems that it's happened several mm. times since. Huh? So I'm not sure how relevant <laughs> it is, but let's just dive into it. But yeah. we're unfairly treated by a taxi driver in, mm. in Melbourne. In 2013, yeah. Yes. And you subsequently reported the incident and then this actually led you to consult with the taxi company to facilitate training for their employees on working with people with visible disabilities, which is an amazing outcome to Mm. have facilitated change from uh, something that you experienced. Kind of elaborate on this story, like how did this transpire? How successful has it been based on (laughs) what you were talking about earlier? Yeah. So I experienced a number of taxi drivers drivers who had refused to take me or tell me I was drunk because I was so red in 2013 particularly. And there was one night when I was coming home from a speech that I made, a conference, and my friend who was the CEO of that organisation at the time said to me, she's going to provide me some cab charge vouchers so I can get home safely. And it was only about nine o'clock. It was in the winter, so it's quite dark. And I said, no, no, I'll take a train. I'm fine. Like I live right near the train station it'll be fine and she said no I really want you to get a taxi I said, okay so the hotel that the conference was at booked me a taxi which was good because that mm-hmm. meant I had the taxi record and I got in the car and he said what's on your face and I said nothing and he said no what's on your face and he said that your face my face is dirty and that I smell and so he wasn't he didn't refuse the, the, the fare he didn't refuse the ride but I refused to ride with him because I felt unsafe. So I got out, saw it, and tweeted about it. And I had a fair few followers on Twitter then, but not as many as now. And it went viral. And I wrote about it after that. And I wrote about how I would like taxi drivers to be aware that disability looks different for everybody, that it's not just wheelchairs and guide dogs, and that I have a right to ride without being questioned as everyone else. And then I used that, I used that blog as a formal complaint always mm. wanting to multitask. <laughs> uh, <and laughs> so I put it as a formal complaint and it would, that was 1-3 cabs. And 1-3 cabs were excellent and they were responsive. Their social media person, Kirsty, is amazing. And I had a meeting with them and I also had a meeting with the Taxi Commission that were then called the Taxi Victorian Taxi Commission, I think, and now they're called Commercial Passenger Vehicle Authority or something. And I had a meeting with both of those people and the driver ended up quitting. It ended up making mainstream news. It made the top story of news.com.au for a couple of days and uh, it was on the radio, I think, and it made a lot of news. And the driver ended up quitting. There was kind of no repercussions for him. You know, he could just mm. quit and he could go and work for another another company. And In my complaint outcome request, I said I would like drivers to know more about disability. I would like them to know that that it's more than just guide dogs and wheelchairs and that we have a right to travel safely. And the taxi company said, we can't do anything until something else happens. Another incident happened. I said, what, that's ridiculous. Someone else shouldn't have to endure this before you take action. So then I went to the Human Rights Commission and Graham Innes was a contact, a friend of mine at the time. He was the Human Rights Commissioner, the Disability Discrimination Commissioner at the Human Rights Commission. And I messaged him and I said, this is what the taxi company said. Uh, This isn't right. I'm taking up a complaint with the Human Rights Commission. And so I went to mediation with them, with the taxi company at the Human Rights Commission and as an outcome, I said that I would like to produce some kind of training and they actually told me that the taxi company, 
the taxi drivers aren't willing to sit through very lengthy training, which is just ridiculous. You know, they'd only sit through 10 minutes. <laughs> so <laughs> we made a video and that video has apparently reduced the amount of complaint, resulted in the amount of complaints reducing around disability. Whether people are not willing to put in a complaint or whether there's less complaints happening, I don't know. But apparently mm. as a result in that year that the video was out, it took about a year to make, like, not a year to make, but it took a year since the complaint happened and then we made the video and then it went out you know that was over a year so that yeah. happened in 2014 and they said that you know reports of disability discrimination had been lower I now when I get into taxis I catch a lot of taxis I, I don't give up catching taxis because of discrimination because I shouldn't have to change my ways they should have to change theirs sometimes when I get in a taxi like in Brisbane or Sydney they'll say oh you look familiar you're on our taxi training video which is <laughs> great but it still happens you know it, yeah. I don't think that it's made a full difference if the taxi drivers aren't willing to watch more than a 10 minute video then that's a problem I was also told this time that the, when, since the taxi discrimination happened that I was the incoming kind of rideshare apps have made it very hard for the taxi company to regulate themselves taxi mm. industry also when I ran an event in um, 2000 and called Access to Fashion at Melbourne Fashion Week and it was an event featuring disabled models and it was run by mostly disabled people and it was the first time this had happened at any kind of Australian Fashion Week. It was amazing and I sought a bunch of sponsors to both pay for and assist with the day and one of the things that I did was call on 1-3-Cabs and I said, hey, we have now got a really good relationship and you have, you know, shown your commitment to disability when inclusion. Could you sponsor my event by providing a taxi for each of the models? And they did. Mm. And that was amazing. amazing. That was a really good yeah. outcome. I said, I want the best of the best. I don't <laughs> want any discrimination on the day. And they were great. Even actually out to me, even though it was a different company for the one, the discrimination that happened this time, they reached out to me and said, hey, we'd like to provide you with some vouchers for next time. So that was really great. You know, it's, it's a good thing, but it still happens. And it's not only to me. It happens to lots of other disabled people. A little girl that I know, not, she's not so little anymore, but she's, I think, 13 or 14, in another state, got into a taxi and the driver had asked what's wrong with her face. And her parents were able to shield her from that by, you know, taking on the burden of um, aggression. And, yeah. But still, you know, it impacts. It's really, really hard. It's hard. Yeah. 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 Well, good on you for being a problem and trying to find a solution mm -hmm. as yeah, well. Thank you. I'm meeting with the Victorian Passenger Safety Vehicle, whoever they are, soon. I don't have, yeah, I guess I've been really disappointed in the response or lack of when I tweet about this. So I've tweeted, I, I went back through after this incident happened on my birthday and I found all the times that it happened to me within the last year and it was about 10 times, always after big events. So after my book launch when it was 45 degrees, a taxi, yeah. was, you know, didn't take me. And anyway, each time I would copy them in and they would not respond and I'd been really strong with them to say, you have not responded, like what's happening? You don't care. So apparently yep. I'm having a meeting with them and I might just invoice them for my time. <laughs> <laughs> Consulting. Yes. yes. Yep. <laughs> so what is some things that you would like to see in 
the future for both visible and invisible disability in Australia. Yeah, better media representation, you know, yeah. for us not to be called snakeskin woman or mermaid baby. Incidental media as well. I am so excited when I'm invited on to talk about something else, not disability related, you know, into the media. I would love to be a regular panel person, panellist on the project, for example. I've done the drum, which is, that was really, really hard, but it was great because I didn't have to just talk about disability. I would love to see better book, rep, you know, literature representation. And that's happening. We've got so many great own voices in the disability space in books. I would also really like to see us just being able to get through our day without being asked why we're sunburned or what's yeah. wrong. I think that it's definitely changing with social media. We can curate our feeds to find people that look like us and also educate people. I would love to see, oh, one thing that often happens is that disabled people aren't paid for our time, our experience when other people are. So I get asked to work for free quite a bit, not so much now because I'm very vocal about it, but I speak up about that. I get asked to do speeches a lot for free or write for different organisations and often it's disability organisations, which is really disappointing because they see us as charitable objects. They see us as just waiting Mm. for an opportunity. Last year I got asked to provide my books for a conference and one thing I'm really grateful of is when people say, hey, where can we buy your books? We'd like to buy a bunch for our conference. But this time they asked me to provide 240 books, <laughs> which was about $8,000. And I said, this is the most ridiculous request of me being asked to write for free, work for free ever. They didn't even ask me to speak at their conference. Like it was literally just, can you provide us? And I was laughing with my agent and my publicist at the publisher about it. And uh, in the end, I think they got f- three free books from the publisher don't know if they bought any but it was a really disappointing thing and I tweeted about it and it went viral like it got shared 10,000 times or something because I said this is absolutely ridiculous and I told the woman that was emceeing the event who's a prominent person in the media that this happened and I said I really hope you're getting paid for this so I'd like people not to expect us to work for free yeah yeah, absolutely. Yep. Fair enough. And more representation, more, you know, low, like higher expectations of us. And are you able to share maybe three pieces of advice for someone that is experiencing a visible skin condition or maybe, you know, a parent or a yeah. carer? Yeah, I think it's really important to be visible. So to not filter your photos, to show people that you are okay with your face being seen uh, that you are helping other people know that there's other people out there like like them so you know being real on social media being authentic and also for people that don't have skin conditions be authentic you know be good allies to us know that you don't have to always answer why you have a red face or look the way you do know that and that you don't have to provide a medical history to a stranger and also know that loving yourself is much much easier than hating yourself and wanting to change there's only treatments out there like I was talking about earlier, that about reducing the redness, but they can really hamper the impact of our lives. So use what you need to, but don't take the medications that reduce the quality of life. Yeah, things coming out so frequently for claiming that it's going to cure or do this, mm-hmm. but then one of the risks. I remember being with a friend who has a child with ichthyosis, a beautiful boy in America, and at the time, I met her, she was pregnant, and she said, oh, I can't put this cream on my son because it will harm my unborn baby. And I said, what's it doing to your son then? 
Another thing for parents is connect your child with other people with ichthyosis. We know a lot where your child's going to be us one day. It's important for your child to have role models. And also stop talking over us like parents. Just listen and don't, Mm -hmm. you know, like don't dismiss our opinion. I had a parent one day message me and she was the mother of about a 15-month-old. And she told me that the paraffin I was using was harming my skin and that I should use a different product that was part of a multi-level marketing scheme. I now know that she's selling tubs, like nano bubble tubs for people. And she guilts people into thinking that they're not caring for their child because they're not purchasing this $4,000 tub. Mm, wow. There's an issue. So just take a step back and know that we have experienced this for years and years and years and are managing the best we can and are probably more helpful to your child than a multi-level marketing product ever will be. Yes. Boom. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so what is next for you? Well, I've got a busy year ahead, although probably not as busy as last year, which I'm very glad for. I am editing a book called Growing Up Disabled in Australia, which is part of the Growing Up series with Black Ink Books. Growing Up Disabled in Australia features, I think, 45 different disabled people. Their stories in forms of chapter, like full chapters they've written or interviews that they've done with me. We've got people like Jordan Steele-John, who's the senator, the Green Senator. We've got Isis Holt, who is a Paralympian. Elle Gibbs, who is a really amazing disability activist and policy person. And Elle has actually got quite a severe skin condition, which is a really important story to have in this book, I think, around her acceptance of her skin and discovering the social model of disability. We've got people who have been institutionalised in the book. We've got people who are still growing up, like Isis Holt and another young woman who's about 16 who has albinism. We've got people who are elders in our community. So Gail Kennedy, who is an elder in the Aboriginal community who has a physical disability. We've got people with polio who've grown Mm. up during the wartime. So it's an amazing resource. I really hope that it will be in schools and in personal libraries and will help people. I'm also doing some work with a writer's, uh, what's it called, like a writing company, mentoring people in writing. I'm working on lots of different writing projects of my own. I am now, actually, I don't know whether it's been announced yet, but I am going to be on the advisory panel for the Emerging Writers Festival. I'm doing a bunch of events, like I'm doing all about women in Sydney at the Opera House and a few other events around. So, yeah, it's going to be exciting. But I just hope I get more sleep because I used to have a nap, you know, like on my days that I didn't work in in an office, I used to have a nap. And now I've kind of put that by the wayside. And I learned that having a nap is really important because I need to regenerate my skin to keep looking youthful. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You're going on. Well, yeah, amazing. Sorry, and something else I'm doing is speaking at Appearance Matters in the UK, which is a conference about different, about appearance diversity. And I'm the keynote speaker. I've spoken there before in 2012. And now I'll be the keynote speaker talking about the importance of selfies and the importance of, um, you know, visible representation. And also I'm going to, my contract at Fringe will be up in 2021. And so, I'm going to apply to do my PhD in in appearance diversity. So, yeah. Massive, massive (laughs) thing. Yeah. 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 It's been so great to talk to you. Thank you. Oh, it's my pleasure. Well, yeah, thank you for spending so much time just sharing your experience and everything. (laughs) It's been a pleasure.
Wow, what an interview. Carly shared so much in this episode from overcoming adversity, her daily routine, and her many projects that have been instrumental in raising the voice for disabled people in Australia. The three deeper than skin insights that stood out to me were number one, the importance of getting out there early. From a very young age, Carly was working in department stores, which she believes was instrumental in building her people skills and creating polite responses to the many questions that she gets asked. While initially it may be scary, it will build confidence and may just land you opportunities that you could never imagine. Number two, it is not your responsibility to educate everyone just because they ask. While as a parent, carer, or someone that has a visible skin difference, you may feel obliged to explain your condition to everyone that you interact with as part of raising awareness and educating the general public. But unless you want to, you don't have to. You can politely decline. Or if they're being rude, you can rudely decline. We wouldn't expect someone to disclose that they were on anxiety medication when they walked into a store or got onto public transport. So you don't need to feel like you feel obliged to disclose your condition either. Number three, listen to your body and if possible, design your life around what is best for you. Carly shared how since becoming a freelancer, she can work from home in her PJs in her bed if she wishes, which is so important for the days that she's feeling especially sore or lacking energy. There are many, many careers and workplaces that allow these types of arrangements now, which are more flexible, but also be informed that as part of the disability scheme, requesting to work part-time is actually within your rights. So, I just absolutely love speaking with Carly. She oozes cool from her sense of bold and colourful fashion to unashamedly being herself to having her own postage stamps. Did you know this? Seriously, what is not to love? I urge you to buy her book, a memoir titled Say Hello, which you can buy in print form or on audiobook, which is what I have. And I love it because I can listen to it when I'm driving or working out. If you loved my conversation with Carly, I would love for you to screenshot you listening to this episode and share your three deeper than skin insights with me by tagging dermhealth.co. I look forward to bringing you another episode of the Heal Thy Skin podcast next week. Until next time, stay skin powered. You know, there's one thing that I love more than skin. That's probably podcast reviews. If you're enjoying these podcast episodes, we would love to hear about it. Jump onto your podcast app, scroll down, hit the five stars, go on, we know you want to, and leave a review. We'd love to hear from you. Otherwise, you can connect with us on social media at dermhealth.co or send us an email, info at dermhealth.co. And if there is a guest that you would love to hear from on the podcast episode, we want to know about it. Get in touch. Have a great week and we'll speak to you again soon.